It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study uh, good evening and welcome this is the virtual bible study for thursday march the 18th uh i guess that's right it is the 18th it is the 18th, 18th. Yeah. march the 18th 2010 Thanks for joining us for the Virtual Bible Study tonight. My name is Greg Gwynn. I'm one of the regular hosts of the Virtual Bible Study. My son Jacob is not with us tonight. He has other obligations. But joining me on the program tonight is my good friend Jim Walsh, who preaches for the church in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Jim, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Good evening. Thanks for letting me come, Greg. Well, we're glad to have you here. And in fact, as I told you earlier, I'm, I'm counting on your expertise uh, for our subject tonight. Earlier today, to our update list, I sent out a suggestion as to what would be our topic tonight. We want to talk about Bible translations. We want to talk about, to some degree, we want to talk about the accuracy of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is accurate, that it has been conveyed to us accurately through the centuries. But we also want to talk about Bible translations. There's a host of them out there. Jim, what is there, like over 150 English translations of the Bible? You know, there's literally dozens of them. You know, I don't know the exact number, but, uh, you know, it seems we're at a point in time where every couple of years someone wants to come out with a new translation. When you think of, you know, the time period, say, from the, the King James Version, the last updated version of the King James Version was 1769. Well, then the next version was the English Revised Version of 1881, and then 20 years after that was the American Standard Version, 1901, but then there wasn't another one until after the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you had generations of people that only knew of one particular translation, but in the last 50 years, it's just a booming industry. Yeah, well, and a lot of it's been driven by the fact you come out with a new translation, you're going to make some money on it. Right, right. And a lot of these publishing houses have therefore gotten into the business because it is a profitable enterprise. The Bible continues to be the best best-selling book, I guess, every year. More Bibles are sold than any other book. And so if you can get a piece of that pie, a lot of people are willing to do that. Right. Now, what that does is pose some challenge to us as Christians because they are both good and bad translations out there. As they have multiplied in number, some of them are worthy, some of them are, are, are helpful and good uh, a good Bible to study and read from regularly. But others of them are, are pretty deplorable and are not trustworthy and would actually lead people astray by the way that, the, that some of the passages are rendered. So we want to talk about that tonight. Uh, to our update list, I asked the questions, number one, and we want to deal with this first, how do you answer someone who argues that the Bible's been grossly corrupted as it's been handed down through the centuries? And there are, there are people who do that. And as Christians, we run into them pretty frequently. Jim, they say, oh, you can't trust anything about the Bible. I mean, maybe it was the inspired word of God literally when it was given 2,000 years ago. I was talking about the New Testament specifically. But over 2,000 years, man, there's been all kinds of opportunity for corruption to enter in. And we have no idea that... What we're reading when we read the New Testament today is what was like the original. I mean, that's a common... Yeah, it is It is a common assertion, and uh, there is an assumption that someone had a determined effort to corrupt it 
and that from that time forward, nobody knew about it. Yeah. You know, there's this belief that somehow, you know, uh, generations and generations ago, you know, thousands of years ago, whatever, people were ignorant and they didn't know about the Bible, and so only the scribes who were transcribing from one language to another knew the Bible, and there was some concerted effort to corrupt it. Some but, kind of a conspiracy, yeah, anyway. But, but even at that, let's assume that, that they, they're on to something. You would have to know what the original was and that the copies that came after weren't the same to know that they were corrupted. Before Otherwise, it's just it. an assertion. That's a, it's an assertion without foundation. You can't prove if If it is, in fact, so, you couldn't prove it if you had to. Yeah. But I, we're going to talk here in a minute about the fact there's all kind of proof that that is not the case. The Bible has not been corrupted through the centuries. But that was our first question. In other words, if you, if you run into someone who, who makes that assertion, that the Bible's been corrupted through the centuries. How do you answer? We want to talk about that. And then we want to get into the Bible translations that we have, uh, and which we're asking, which one do you use and why? You may have more than one that you use frequently, but which one or ones do you use and why? And then, of all of them that are out there, which ones would you advise people to not use because of some problem. What is that problem? Tell us which ones you advise people not to use. There's a couple ways you can get to us tonight with your comments and add to our discussion. You can call us toll-free, 1-877-381-4567. Again, that's 1-877-381-4567. You can send us an email to questions at collegeview.com, questions at collegeview.com. That contact info is scrolling across the bottom of your screen if you're watching on Ustream video t uh, tonight. And so you can see that uh, contact info. We want you to use it. We'd like your input on our program. Also, you may want to get into the chat room and join with others who are chatting there. Let's see. I think I just killed the video, Jim. Uh, let me see here. <laughs> I think I hit the wrong thing. Uh, as many of you know, uh, when Jacob is not here, uh, well, wait a minute. There, there we go. I think I'm back. No? Oh. <laughs> Maybe somebody can get in the chat room and let me know if you're still seeing the video. I have lost the video here. and uh, Let me know if you're still seeing the video. Anyway, as J when Jacob is not here, I'm a little more antsy about all the controls as we talk along. A long way, but you can get in the chat room. I see the chat room is up. Um, well, let me restart. Let me restart the video and see if I can can get it going here again. May have to may have to get clear out of it and, and re reboot. Um, let me see if that will help. We'll try that. Um, but anyway, get in the chat room. You can join us in the chat room there uh, as well. So. Let me work on this video here for a minute, and I think we're going to get started. There, how about that? And that. Okay, there we go. I think I think we've got video. Uh, some of you in the chat room, let me know if you're getting video now. I think I hit the wrong button there, Jim. Just uh, keep your fingers to yourself. Yeah, that's right. Keep my fingers to myself. <laughs> okay, so anyway, you can call us, 1-877-381-4567. You can email us to questions at collegeview.com. Uh, or you can get in the, the chat room and join us, uh, uh, join others who are chatting away there uh, tonight in the chat room. But let's talk about this first question, Jim. Okay, we, we, we've got some people who tell us the Bible is just so corrupted. Uh, how, how are you going to approach that, that question? 
Well, you know, there's any number of uh, informative scholars out there who have addressed this issue over and over. In fact, this issue has been addressed every generation. There's always someone to provide more information. Let me just give you two things to think about. Now, this is just talking about the Old Testament, but this is from Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary, uh, Text and Versions, page 840. And it says, altogether, the manuscript fragments constitute 400 books, a few almost intact, more than 40,000 fragments. So there's enough fragments there for people to compare to what we have in the Bible. Here's something from F.F. Bruce, uh, who I believe is an Oxford uh, don or or scholar, in a book called Second Thoughts on the Dead Sea Scrolls, pages 61 and 62. He says, in comparing the scrolls with the early Masoretic texts, how do these earlier biblical texts compare with those we had known as the earliest surviving ones? Do the newly discovered scrolls, and I think he's talking about Dead Sea Scrolls, do the newly discovered scrolls enable us to make large-scale corrections to the Masoretic manuscripts, which were developed uh, 500 to 1000 A.D.? So he's talking about uh, this group of individuals, the Masoretes, who were scribes, and how they copied uh, the scriptures from 500 to 1000 A.D., How do the Dead Sea Scrolls compare to what they provided? Here's what he says. The new evidence confirms what we had already good evidence to believe, that the Jewish scribes of the early Christian centuries copied and recopied the text of the Hebrew Bible with the utmost fidelity. Their workmanship was much more accurate than the workmanship of Christian scribes who copied and copied and recopied the text of the Greek Bible. So there's just every bit of evidence out there to to recognize that what we have, we can have confidence in that it hasn't been corrupted when when the dead sea scrolls were were discovered it, what was really so significant about them is that they were by about 900 years older than any other manuscript evidence that right. was available right. before that right and and what was amazing about it when you read about the dead sea scrolls was over that period of 900 plus years you 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 would have been able to say well how, has this corruption taken place in the old testament text and over 900 years, they found effectively nothing changed. That's right, how right. careful the copyists had been through all those centuries. When they weren't, they weren't just playing around like they were copying the daily crossword puzzle. They understood this was the word of God, and they were using utmost care to preserve it accurately. And I think that's an important point to to realize whether someone is a Christian or not, whether someone believes in the Bible or doesn't. These people who were translating and copying, they did believe it was the Word of God, and so they took the utmost care in their transcription. In fact, these uh, individuals, the Masoretes, uh, were Jewish uh, scribes, and they had a system of counting letters, counting uh, the the intricate uh, characters for vowels, the number of sentences, the number of characters, and they did one page at a time. And when they completed a page, they went through counting all those things to ensure that at the very at the very least every Everything from the original page added up, characters, lines, verses, everything added up exactly as the, the original page before they went on to the next That's one. right, meticulous in their care. I got some emails answering this question, Jim. I thought they were pretty good. Randy in Jackson, Missouri writes, We have far more proof that the Bible is accurate than any other ancient document. Every new discovery of Scripture, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls, continues to reinforce that we have a very accurate text of the Bible handed down through the centuries. I think he's exactly right. I, and we were talking about this before the program went on the air. 
we've got literally thousands of manuscript, at least fragments of various parts of the scripture. It's it's in the thousands. You said maybe as many as forty thousand. Yeah, and one reference I have says that. And again, we're talking about fragments, and what we mean by fragments are portions of verses. We're not talking about whole books, but portions of verses. There's upwards of forty thousand fragments. In other words, we can we can take a portion of a scripture here and a portion of a scripture there, and utilizing that fragment compared to what we have today. So even if you were thinking about, say, John 3.16. If the fragment of Scripture we have is, for God so loved the world, that's all we have of that Scripture, we can still compare it to what we have today, and the verse is still the same. Yeah. So what they do is kind of like a little puzzle, but they take those fragments and, and they match them up, and they, they continue to be to, to prove the accuracy of the Scripture. Exactly. Some place that I read concerning the thousands of manuscripts then that are available concerning the Holy Scriptures, they they outnumber any other ancient writing by I mean it's not even they're not even comparable. There's there's perhaps as many as forty thousand fragments of the of the of the scriptures available for study. The in second place, as I understand it, is Homer's Iliad, and there's six hundred and forty three manuscript uh, bits of manuscript evidence to support. Um, or to document the accuracy of our copy today right. of Homer's Iliad. Right. But you know what's interesting is nobody doubts that we have an accurate rendition of Homer's Iliad. I've right. never I've never right. heard anybody say, "Oh, Homer's Iliad has been so corrupted. We don't have any idea at all what Homer wrote back when he wrote." Everybody says, "Yeah, that's bound to be accurate." 643 bits of manuscript evidence for Homer's Iliad. We've got 40,000 bits of manuscript evidence for the scriptures, and yet there are plenty of people who still want to say, oh, I don't think you can trust the scriptures. Well, there's one whole religious group who believes that we needed to have a, a new revelation, and they brought forth a, a new Bible, so to speak, and their reason is they say there's many plain and precious things missing from the scriptures, but they have no proof for that. Yeah, exactly right. I've got an email from Garland who writes, First, I would ask, for those who say that the scriptures are corrupted, he said, I would ask for evidence of such corruption. And as you said, Jim, yeah. you'd have to have the original right. to compare to before you could prove any corruption. And the fact of the matter is we do have near, near copies of the originals. But he says, when they point to the large number of variations in the manuscripts, I would explain how those numbers are grossly inflated by minute variations in spelling and other typographical mistakes that are easily explained and understood by a textual critic. With those out of the way, the number of significant variations is quite small and amount to very little in terms of doctrinal differences. By considering the weight of the number and quality of the witnesses, we can be very confident that we have Hebrew and Greek texts that are almost identical to the long-lost autographs. And autographs, of course, reference to the original writings in the, in the handwriting of the author. And I think Garland is exactly right. There's something, and when you hear this number, it sounds, it sounds scary. There's 150,000 variations. As you take all these manuscripts of the Scriptures, there's 150,000 variations. In other words, they differ that much between them all. Well, uh, I think as Garland says, this is, this is sort of inflated reporting. A lot of those differences are things like word order. For instance, one manuscript might say King Herod mm-hmm. and the other say Herod the king. Right. Well, that counts as a variation. Right. But it's obviously no difference. Uh, variations on uh, you, substituting one term for another, Lord versus Christ, for instance. Omission um, of a, a word, addition of a word like the or for, a difference in spelling. If you spelled a man's name one way in one manuscript and, and one letter was different in another, that constitutes a variation. Right. If you take all of that kind of stuff out, right. you end up with about 
400, uh, textual critics say there's about 400 significant, uh, actually significant variations in the manuscript, but none of those change any doctrinal understanding that we have from the Word of God. Right. They're just, it's, it's just a, a, a false claim that the Bible has been so badly corrupted. And so uh, I, I guess if, if you didn't carry anything else away from the virtual Bible study night, I hope everybody would at least be able to say confidently, when I pick up the Bible, it has it has at least been translated from a good copies of the of uh, of the Word of God in the original languages. Right. We're going to talk about translations here. We're going to take a break real quick. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the accuracy of the Bible. Then we want to get into these translations. If you have a question about a translation, we're going to talk about several different ones tonight. If you have a specific question about a translation. Uh, uh, you can ask, and we'll try to answer if we know anything about it. If we don't, we'll say so. Like I said, I think there's something like 160 different English translations out there. We, we obviously may not be able to comment on them all, but we will try our best if you have some specific question or if you have some specific comment. What translation do you like? Which which ones do you think need to be avoided? We'll be right back after this break. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Do you remember when no one would have thought twice about getting the church involved in daycare centers, kindergarten, softball leagues, and youth camps? Are you upset when churches spend more time and money on social programs and recreational activities than on spreading the gospel? Are you tired of seeing congregations with their emphasis in entirely the wrong areas? We're still preaching the same gospel and still practicing the same things that you remember from years ago. We're committed to the idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. Check us out. Please visit soon at the College View Church of Christ. I'm Arthur Haynes from Coleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. We're talking about Bible translations tonight, and we're also talking about the idea that we have a reliable copy of the Bible. We can trust it, and that's very important for us to know as Christians. Um have an email from Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana, who says, I think it's important for people to realize if they can't trust the Bible, they can't trust any other document of antiquity. There is more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other book of its time. Besides spelling and punctuation errors, the textual accuracy is fantastic. This should lead us not to distrust the Bible, but to trust it. Jim, I think that's a good observation. If you study this question you will come away with confidence, and uh, it will it will ensure your confidence in the Bible. It won't shake your faith. It will it'll right because there are so many manuscripts. I mean, it just every time someone seems to go on a dig somewhere in the Middle East, they come back finding something that is going to corroborate things that we read about in in the scriptures. Exactly right. We got an email from Don who says, if they're talking about different translations. I would agree that there's discrepancy between translations. We'll talk about translations in a minute. But if they're talking about the original Hebrew and Greek text, then I disagree, he says. And, and so uh, Don is on board with that. We got an email from Jack who says, uh, for those who think the Bible has been corrupted, let me see if I can get this up here on the screen. Uh, if this person believes there's no truth whatsoever in the Bible, I would believe I would have to approach this question from an external evidence of the Bible. For example, written over more than 1,500 years by vastly different writers, kings, tent makers, shepherd, doctor, etc. Yet every book in the Bible is consistent in its message. These 66 books talk about history, prophecy, poetry, and theology. 
Despite their complexity, differences in writing style, and vast time periods, the books of the Bible agree miraculously well in theme, fact, and cross-referencing. No human beings could have planned such an intricate combination of books over a 1,500-year time span. Bible manuscripts, remember there were no printing presses until 1455, have survived despite weather, persecution, and time. Most ancient writings written on weak materials like papyrus have vanished altogether, yet many copies of the Old Testament scriptures survived. For instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain all the books of the Old Testament except Esther and have been dated to before the time of Christ. Consider Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, another writing. Only ten copies written about a thousand years after the event are in existence. In comparison, there are over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts, the earliest dating to within 24 years after Christ. Now, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm not sure we have a manuscript. That would put a manuscript in the middle of the first century, and I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. think we have one no, that old. Maybe the old. middle of the second century. Right. Uh, going on, he says, uh, even apart from all these external evidences, I, uh, do I trust the Bible? Absolutely. God has preserved his word despite the unintentional failings and intentional attacks of human beings. We can have the utmost confidence that the Bible we have today is the same Bible that was originally written. The Bible is God's word. We can trust it. Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Matthew 5.18, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. I think, Jack, you're exactly right. I do think that. Of course, that, that's an argument from faith, Jim, mm-hmm. it is, th- yes. that we believe that God has preserved his word. Right. Uh, and if we believe in God, we believe that he said he would and he did. Now, that wouldn't convince a skeptic, but I think that is a, a, a basis of confidence for the, for believers. Well, one thing that uh, that I like in, in researching, you know, how the Bible came into existence, you know, we look at technology today, and, and it's kind of funny because sometimes you can watch like a uh, – you can watch a TV program, say a TV program from 10 years ago, where someone's using a cell phone. And on the cell phone, it's got a big antenna or something like that. And you think, well, no one's got antennas on cell phones today. Technology changes so fast. And yet, as technology changes, concepts dealing with the Bible continue to keep up with it. You know, what? once we got uh, the Internet available, people put stuff up on the Internet. You can buy, you know, a Bible text for your handheld devices, whatever. And, and going back in antiquity, you know, it's interesting to note that Moses received the Ten Commandments written on stone. Well, stone was the medium for carving things. But then as clay... Uh, tablets became available, then scriptures were written on clay tablets, and then as wood tablets became available, and then as vellum, and then as parchment became available. Every time, whatever the new technology was, the Bible just continued to proliferate. The Bible was one of the first things to invade those new technologies. Right. Printing presses. Right. When the printing press came along, what was the first thing they wanted to print? They wanted to print a Bible. That's right. Exactly right. So, I mean, that just that is significant. And, that, and, that, and that's got to build our faith and confidence in, in the Word of God. Uh, I had an article in my file, uh, Jim, from Bob Waldron. I think you know Bob. Uh, he's, a, he's a good Bible student. And he was addressing this question of corruptions entering into the text. Uh, mm-hmm. and, he's, and he's basically arguing, when could it have happened? Right. Because he, he says, for instance, uh, the King James Version was based to a great extent on the translation of William Tyndall, which had been printed in 1525. An earlier translation was one by John Wycliffe, which goes back even before the time of printing to about 1450. So basically, in, we can compare our Bibles to those Bibles. We know nothing has changed over the last 600 years. Okay, well, you're talking about uh, Wycliffe or Wycliffe. 
170 copies of that still exist. So we can compare, even though that was written, uh, you know, not printed, the printing press didn't come out until like another 70 years after his Bible came out, but we still have 170 copies. So we can take one of those copies and we can compare it to what we have today. That's that is that's 700 years, and you can still find the accuracy there. You know, exactly. so so when would it have happened? It didn't, it didn't happen in the last 600 years. Right. And then he says you can go back to the Latin Vulgate, which was uh, finished around 400 A.D. approximately, and we can compare our Bibles to the Latin Vulgate. There's no difference in our Bibles and what was what's in the Latin Vulgate. So that takes us all the way back to 400 A.D. Uh, and and then uh, we again we've got manuscript. Fragments, at least, dating back into the second century, thousands, hundreds and thousands of them. Uh, uh, and really, I don't have time to read all of Bob's article here, but basically, he says the only time frame in which all this supposed corruption could have taken place was between 100. John the Apostle died sometime around the turn of the century. There, 100. Between 100 and 200, he says, we've got, we've got all kinds of evidence from 200 on that we know our Bibles are not changed from 200 till today. He says, really, the only time that, they could, that such corruption could have happened would have been in that 100 years between 100 and 200. And he says, yet there were, there were, there were, in, there were writers, not inspired writers, but writers, some of whom who were familiar with the apostles who were writing and quoting Scripture during that era. If we add in all of their what they call extant writing, right. And and you could almost reproduce the whole scripture. The, the people that they the, the the men they often refer to as the early church fathers. You know exactly. they they were disciples either of the apostles or the, the disciples themselves, like a disciple of Timothy. And they wrote works commenting on the scriptures of the things that they had been taught. Well, you know here's some information I have. Uh, there is uh, fragments, 38 fragments of an old Latin version of the New Testament that was made in the latter part of the second century. So there, there are portions of that. The Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome somewhere in the fourth century, so that's the 300s, and uh, contains both the Old and New Testament in, in Latin. Uh, there's a Coptic version uh, which is an ancient Egyptian language written with Greek alphabets that came about again in the third or fourth century. So, you know, we could just continue to go back. There's, there's just a very short window that exists, and they want to put in that window the belief that everything became to be corrupted. You know, someone decided that Jesus really was the Christ when he wasn't. They decided that he was resurrected when he wasn't, etc. Et they had to get busy scheming yeah, that all yeah. up because they only had just a few years to get that all in place right. to deceive all the rest of us. Right. And, and that's just foolishness, obviously. What, what we're saying here, and all Christians need to have this confidence, is what we're saying is that this this false claim that the Bible has been corrupted through the centuries just simply can't be true. And we should have no fear that our Bibles are not true to the original text. Our Bibles are very true to the original text. There's no time, no opportunity for corruption to have entered in. And anybody who's making that accusation just making a false charge that can't be sustained with any proof whatsoever. I think I believe that's correct. All right. Uh, well, th- I, I think that that's an important consideration, and we all need to, to, to have our faith confident about that. Let's talk about Bible translations, because that, that, that is a big question. It's a worthy question. There are so many out there. Which one should I be using? Which one is reliable? There are some that are not reliable. Which ones are they? 
to be avoided and so forth. So we want to get into that question. Uh, we're coming up on a break, and I think we're going to take our break, our, our uh, half-hour break at this point, so we can get into that uh, hot and heavy after the break. Uh, plan to join us. Send us an email, uh, questions at collegeview.com. You can call us, 1-877-381-4567. There's still some chatting going on in the chat room. The chat room's a little bit quieter tonight than usual, uh, but we'll be trying to monitor that as well. Uh, we want your input as we talk about now Bible translations as we head toward the top of the hour. Stay with us on the Virtual Bible Study. Enjoying the Virtual Bible Study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. We heard a true story about a married couple that got one of those nice electric blankets that has dual controls. As you know, such blankets allow each person to set the heat level on their respective side of the bed. This is an especially nice feature since most wives want the temperature setting higher and most husbands want it lower. All was well until the blanket was laundered for the first time. In reconnecting the cords, the wife inadvertently got his controls switched with hers. That night proved to be a real disaster. She was cold and kept raising the temperature setting. He was hot and kept lowering his. As you can see, with each adjustment, the situation grew worse. Neither of them could sleep, and by morning, both were ready to throw the thing away. This story is sadly all too similar to things in the church. Seems everyone always tries to make adjustments to the other fellow without first taking care of his own problems. It is so easy to see the shortcomings of someone else, and even easier to overlook the same or worse things in our own lives. When such situations occur, everyone is miserable, and very little good can be accomplished. Please understand that we're commanded to restore the brother who is overtaken in a fall, Galatians 6, verse 1, and we're to convert the one who has erred from the truth, James 5, verses 19 and 20. But all of this must be done in the order that Jesus prescribed, quote, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And we're back on the virtual Bible study for Thursday night, March 18th, 2010. We're talking about the Bible, its reliability, and we also now want to get into the question of Bible translations. Because it's, it's one thing, Jim, to say, okay, especially we're, we're particularly concerned about New Testament, Old Testament as well, but in, re, in regards to the Hebrew Old Testament text, the Greek New Testament text, we've pretty we we got great confidence that we've got good, reliable copies of those original texts. But now, obviously, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek. Right. I studied a little Greek. One time, I tried to study Hebrew and gave up after two weeks when I couldn't even learn the alphabet. Right. So I, I'm I'm depending on people who have skill right. in those languages to convey that into the language that I know and understand. Translators. Right. And and so now we want to talk about them and their work. How well have they done it? And and uh, um, we, we, to do that, we just got to simply talk about some of the translations. Now, Jim, explain the different approach that different translators use. Some use a, a, a more literal approach and so forth. There are two two approaches that are accepted. One is called formal equivalence uh, equivalency, and the other is called dynamic equivalency. Formal, the idea is word for word. You find a word in one language and you translate it into the receiving language. So let's say you're going from Latin and you have the word father in Latin and you want to translate that word into English, you find the word father in English. It's a word for word translation. Dynamic equivalence is 
the desire to have the same thought process with respect to the translation, but to allow the language to speak for itself, to use idioms, slang, phrases, jargon, whatever. So you would you would maybe say father and translate it to father, but you also might say dad. If, if few people refer to their uh, male parent as father, you may use dad then. So, so the difference is that the dynamic equivalence believes you can have a little bit looser uh, understanding of a word using more modern words to, to translate. Now, coming from a conservative point of view, my first reaction would say, I want it word for word. I want it exactly. I mean, you take that word and you translate it in English, and you take the next word and you translate it in English, and give me the finished product word for word from the Greek, for instance, New Testament, to English. I want it word for word, but there's kind of a problem with that. There's a, there's a small problem in that what if the word that is being used is not a word that exists in our language. Um, well, let's take the Internet. You know, Let's say that you end up going to some place in the world. Let's find a, a hypothetical situation someplace in the Amazon, some jungle village somewhere, and you want to communicate to people about the Internet. Well, they don't know anything about the Internet. How are you going to explain that? You have to use other words or phrases to, to communicate your thought and, and get them to a point. So really a combination of uh, the, the formal equivalency and the dynamic equivalent where you have to use because sometimes either words don't exist in the receiving language or in the original language, the meaning has been lost. You know, uh, one, one, good, one good example I always think about in the King James Version is the word propitiation. Yeah. It's not a word anybody uses. I've never heard of that except in the Bible. Well, it, it just means an acceptable substitute, right. an acceptable sacrifice. So we talk about Jesus as our propitiation unto God. It means that Jesus' sacrifice was the only acceptable sacrifice that, that would please God to redeem our sins. He is our propitiation. But, but you and I don't use that language. So right. some so, people. So we got to have help if we're going to use that in a, in like the King James uses the word propitiation. But other versions will say he is the he is the only acceptable sacrifice. Right. So they use a phrase instead. Right. So actually, what has to be the best approach is sort of a combination. Sort of a combination. We, we want to lean heavily toward literalism. Right. Word for word. But we're going to have to we're going to have to be accommodative in some places. For instance, and and. To some extent, just to make it readable, yeah. uh, I've got some notes that you put out here uh, this week. Uh, from here, Here's an example from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. If you just took the word-for-word -word literal translation of 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8 and 9, I shall remain but in Ephesus until the Pentecost door for to me has been opened great and effective and opponents many. Well, I'm going to tell you that's hard to understand. That, that is hard to understand unless you're a Greek scholar. Now, the King James puts it. So here's the King James, which is considered to be a, a, based on a literal translation of the text, says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great door and effectual is opened unto me and there are many adversaries. I can understand that. Right. And, and of course, the difference there is that the, the, the sentence structure in English and Greek is different. You know, the emphasis uh, on a noun or an emphasis on uh, another a portion of the sentence is different from Greek to English. So you really do have to be a scholar in understanding how to, to turn that phrase around to make it understandable. Because if you look at the you look at the actual Greek translated word for word, is he saying that a, a great door has been opened for me, or is he saying there there are great and effective opponents? Yeah. I, and of course we understand when you when you place it out. He's he's Speaking in hopeful context about this door that the Lord has opened for him, and he's anxious to and, take advantage of it. And some of the it. scholars who understand not only word-for-word -word translation, but understand the grammatical construction of sentences right. in right. the original languages yeah. have helped us there. Right. 
Exactly right. Okay. Now, when we're looking at uh, translations and asking the question, which ones are the ones we should trust, several things go into One would be the scholarship of those who translated it. Right. We want a team of scholars. We don't want one guy or a couple guys. Right. In other words, if we've got several dozen translators working together, scholars in, in Greek language, for instance, their professional uh, pride, I guess, would say they they're going that by the fact that they got others looking over their shoulder, they're going to want to do their very best, and they're not going to want to change anything. Or they want to make the best translation possible. Right. So a team of scholars is way better than just one or two. Right, right. And, and you know, when you think about something like the King James version, there were teams. You know, uh, when when King James authorized uh, these, uh, I think he authorized fifty four, but the, for whatever reason, there were only forty seven of them that actually partook of it, and so he split them up into six groups of. Uh, and and well, I think one was uh, one was uh, one group was at Oxford, one at Cambridge, and one at Westminster. And they took you know four or five years to to translate and and put that work together meticulously. And when one group would get through with whatever they were translating, say one group was translating you know the Psalms, they took that material and gave it to someone else to proofread. And then they received someone else's to proofread. So once they get through translating, they weren't through. They were proofreading someone else's. So it was a constant back and forth, back and forth of checking one another out. Okay. Now, we already talked about formal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence. Right, right. We, we would want to lean more heavily toward formal equivalence right. for a reliable translation. And also, we want the translators to be free from any kind of theological bias. Right. In right. other words, we don't want them trying to write into the text, right, the, write into their translation some particular view they have on some theological question. We just right. want them to stick to the word. We don't care right. what they think. We want to know what the word says. Right. We, we want someone who's going to be translating exactly what it says without commenting on it or paraphrasing. So, you know, uh, unless maybe you're, you're a real avid Bible student, you want to stay away certainly from Bibles that include commentary in the text, and definitely you want to stay away from paraphrases because a paraphrase is just someone's Someone's own language about what they think. It's more the of a commentary is. than a translation. It sure is. It yeah. sure is. Okay, let's talk about some of them. Let's talk about the King James. I got an email from Michelle, who is strongly in favor of the King James. Listen to this. She says the King James version is the only inspired word. The King James version is not corrupted at any point. All other versions are thought translated. I think she's talking about the idea of dynamic equivalence. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Uh, the King James version has been said to be the inspired word of God for approximately three hundred years. When did it? become uninspired. The King James Version has truly converted millions of people. Why do we need or let any other version in the church? Well, now that's, you know, Michelle has put to words there a strong sentiment that, that is out there that, and I hear it referred to sometimes as the King James only view, that right. really the only English Bible that's trustworthy is the King James Version and that God basically made it and has has put his seal of approval on it. Right. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, you hear people say that, but the fact of the matter was that they use Greek and Latin texts. You know, um, they uh, Erasmus translated the uh, Greek text uh, and provided us with what is commonly referred to as the, the, the main substance for the textus receptus, which is Latin for the received text. Uh, Erasmus was a, uh, I believe he was a Catholic scholar or possibly even a Catholic priest in the early 1500s. What he really wanted to do was translate a better Latin text. And so he was using both Latin and Greek, and he didn't like some of the Greek texts. So he translated a brand-new Greek text so that he could have the Greek text along with 
the Latin text. But with some and with some alteration, that became known as the Textus, Textus Receptus. But right. you know, uh, I was reading that Erasmus, when he made his translation, never used more than eight manuscripts at that time. Right. Uh, and and, and now there have been a few things added to the Textus Receptus, but it's based upon a, a minority of manuscript evidence right, right. since that time. Now remember, uh, the King James Version was originally translated in 1611. Since that, it's, it's not been 300 years, it's been 400 years effectively yeah. since it came out, almost exactly. Since that time, thousands of additional manuscripts have been discovered. Other versions, ancient versions, which versions are translations right. of the original right. text into other languages, uh, many ancient versions have been discovered. Thousands of writings by early church, so-called early church fathers, right. those who right. quoted the scriptures, thousands of quotations have been found from the scriptures, and even some significant advances in understanding Greek and Hebrew language right, right. have come along in, in 400 years. And so what we're saying is we've got a lot more information than, than was used to translate the King James Version. And and so we got to be careful about saying that it is somehow superior when, when the fact of the matter is it's based upon inferior textual well, basis. It, it was based on, you know, uh, again, you think about the Textus Receptus. It, it was based on using the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate. When um, the King James Version came out, uh, it was based on using some of the other existing Bibles, you know, Coverdale's Bible or the Geneva Bible. Uh, those were also used. So if you're going to say that the King James Version Bible is inspired, meaning that God personally directed through the Holy Spirit these scholars, then, you know, why did they have to keep making changes? Because from 1611, it, it wasn't only but 17 years where they had to make some changes. In 1628 was the first revision, so 17 years later. In 1638, 27 years after the original, they had to make some more, change some words. In 1762, they made another revision, and the final revision was 1769. So the version we have is not 1611. We could not read 1611 language. If you get an actual uh, word-for-word 1611 King James Version Bible, it's difficult to read the English of that day. What we have is from the time of the of the uh, Revolutionary War, 1769, that time period, is, is the wording we have. And still people stumble over that. And, it, and it's still fairly archaic in places, hard to understand. Now, that's what I use, and I right. love I love I, I do, too. Yeah, I do, too. That's what I grew up with, and that's what I, and I think it is a, a reasonably reliable translation, but right. it is not perfect, and it is not God-inspired. Right. The translation is not God-inspired. The words from the original, we believe, are God-inspired. Yeah, we just need to make a point. There's not any English translation of the Bible that is inspired of God. The, the text from which those English were, uh, were translated Okay, we believe that wholeheartedly, yeah. but God didn't didn't produce any English translations of the Bible. Right, and so men did, and men can make mistakes. That's right. why we need to check up on That's them. That's right. why That's we exactly need to talk about a right. subject like this. Um, yeah. Obviously, one of the things uh, I read someplace, Jim, I thought this was good on the on uh, the King James version. It's obviously the number one most common, most popular Bible in English translation. The translators were noted for their scholarship and their reverent attitude toward the scriptures. Right. Uh, this author said they could have benefited from later manuscript discoveries, but modern translators could benefit from their attitude toward the text. So they had a good attitude toward the text and they wanted to preserve it. But if it was, you know, I, I think the most glaring example of, of flaw in the King James is 
Acts chapter 12, verse right, 4. Right, right. It's where it says Easter. It says, uh, when he, Herod, had apprehended him, Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. That word's not in the No, you know, text. and uh, historically Easter. the story is that uh, King James, his favorite uh, holiday was Easter. And so he wanted to know where in the Bible Easter was, and they couldn't find it. So they took the word Passover out, and they put Easter in in Acts chapter 12 there, verse uh, 3 or verse 4. 20, uh, uh, Twenty-nine other times that Greek word is found in the New Testament. Every time it's translated Passover, Passover right. except here it's except translated Easter. to get it in there for right. the king. Right, so that he could look at it, and he could say, okay, you know, uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. So if it was inspired... You know, if it was inspired, then you're going to have to say that was part of God's plan to change and confuse us. Because if you've got a word that's found 29 times, why is it rendered 28 times one way and then just this other way? Exact word for word, letter for letter, translated something else. Exactly right. So the, the King James is a good translation. I love it. I use it. But I, I'm not going to, to agree uh, with the argument that it's perfect or somehow God produced it and conveyed it to us in the modern day. That's not the case. It's a, it's a it's a good, I think, reasonably reliable translation of the Bible, but it's not perfect. Something you did in your work you've done on this recently, Jim, is that you uh, found some information about the reading grade level of various translations, and and the King James is written at the at a twelfth grade. grade reading. So it's right. pretty pretty hard to right. read. A lot of people don't read at 12th graders. Right, right, you know, which is kind of sad because you would think that, you know, all of us that have graduated should at the very least. But I think even newspapers are only written at a ninth grade reading level. So what, there are several, you know, versions, and in one of them is King James Version. I think the other is the Revised Standard Version uh, that are written at 10th or 11th or 12th grade levels. And so what that means is it, it's... For adults, you know, it's for people who, who want to be able to, to read and understand sentences, understand who's being spoken about, where and why. Yeah, exactly right. All right, we're going to get a little more into these translations when we get back from this break. Uh, give us a call. Get involved in this discussion. one eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven toll free. Send us an email, questions at collegeview.com, or get in the chat room and, and give your thoughts there. We'll be right back after this break. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks it. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Hi, my name is Mike Holt. My wife and I, we love listening to the virtual Bible study. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we're back for our final 15-minute segment. We're talking about translations of the Bible. Got some emails here. Uh, Jack says, uh, I use the, um, the New American Standard Bible because initially I felt it was easier to read. Through the years I've studied it, I've also come to the conclusion it's accurate to the original text. 
the New American Standard is a good Bible, Jim. Right. Again, it's 11th grade uh, reading level. Uh, current version came out in 95. 54 translators are involved. Um, so, you know, you've got uh, a lot of people are involved in that. And, you know, their purpose really was to make an easier to read uh, Bible. They wanted to remain true to the text, but make it a little bit easier for people who have some difficulty with the King James. It's the new American Standard, right. and so it's a it's a revision of the American, American Standard, Standard of right. 1901. Right, right. I think everybody that I've ever read after acknowledges the original American Standard version, 1901 version, is perhaps the most literal to the original wording of the Greek it, text. It's supposed to be the, the, the most reputable to, as far as the Greek text is concerned. So, but it's choppy to read. It, it's yeah, it's yes, a little hard to read. But I think, you know, for, for like our brethren, probably it's going to be, you know, either the, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, New American Standard, or the Revised Standard. That's the one I think most are... Uh, have found acceptable as far as its accuracy and its readability. So those three, those yeah. four rather, yeah, yeah. Are, are are good translations. That you just named them: King James, New King James, American Standard, New American Standard, or maybe five, yeah. the Revised, Revised Standard. Standard. Yeah, because they're going to be based on on a formal equivalence, right? Primarily. To the best, to the to, best possible, to right. the best possible, translated by a team of scholars, right. and without apparent theological bias built right. in, right? Okay, all right, so for those of you who are listening, Jim's just giving you his top five. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I got an email from Joshua in Kokomo, Indiana, who says, I normally use the New King James Version, also like the English Standard Version. I use the New King James Version because it's a word-for-word translation. It cleans up some of the of the archaic language of the King James Version. I was raised on the King James Version, but most kids I talk to have a hard time understanding it. The King James Version was translated with the common man in mind, and I think we should keep the common man in mind as we teach, too. That's an interesting point. The King James, when it came out in 1611, was supposed to be a, a, a for Bible. The, for the common man, right. Why wouldn't we want to have also, uh, then, a Bible that the common man could understand easily? Well, you know, it, it, we, we do, and again, we want to think about, want to think about, one thing about translations is that there's a purpose behind them. You know, what is the purpose behind them? Because there are some Bibles that are purposely translated so that they could be for lower reading levels. You know, uh, there's some Bibles for people who uh, do not have English as their native language. So, you know, you don't want to really necessarily give them a King James Version, obviously. Then you've got children. You know, you've got children's Bibles. So you have to recognize that the translation uh, is going to come about so that it can satisfy a particular audience who does have a true desire to learn. If you were trying to use the King James Bible for someone who was didn't have English as their primary language. It, they have very hard time making sense of it. Thou sayest well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right. So the King James is a 12th grade reading level. The Revised Standards a 10th grade reading level. Uh, New American. Let's see. We got the New American Standard is 11th grade reading level. Uh, New King James Version is a ninth grade, grade reading level, yeah. and and so that's sort of written at the level of what you might expect when you pick up the newspaper. newspaper. Right. Okay. Right. So that now, if if we get lower than a ninth grade reading level, Jim, I mean even to some extent, even maybe with the ninth grade reading level, but if you get lower than that, it's going to be hard to have a word for word translation and get it to a reading level lower than say ninth grade. You're going to have to. You're going to have to. To simplify some things, you're going to have to do some rewording. Right. When you when you get lower than a certain grade level, then you you lose that formal equivalency translation. You have to go to something else because they're using more words 
to convey an idea and simpler words to convey an idea. So it's not word-for-word translation. It becomes phrases. It, it does become uh, concepts that people are, are going to uh, talk about. Like, like sometimes uh, one translation always takes out the word heavens. Now, when it's talking about heavens, we know that word means the, the place above. They just say sky instead. But, you know, something is lost when you talk about the wonder of the heavens or the wonder of the sky, you know. There's well, something it's, lost there. And it's not literal. Right. It's obviously not literal. But uh, if you're going to get it on a very simple level, you're going to have to do some stuff like right. that. And right. So you're going to lose some of your accuracy right. Right. in the process of that. And that being the case, then that would also introduce some of these other Bibles that, that uh, we might want to avoid. For instance... One that a lot of people use. It's very, it's very popular in the denominational world. Uh, some, some of our brethren, Jim, are, are uh, sort of fond of the New International Version. Right. It's written at a seventh grade reading level. Right. Right. So they, they have done some things there to um, uh, make it sort of accommodate uh, a, a simpler style. Right. It's very readable. I mean, I acknowledge it's very readable, but it's not going to be as accurate. Here's what Joshua wrote from Kokomo, Indiana. On that. I try to avoid using the NIV. It, it is a thought-for-thought thought translation. I'm not sure. I, I think maybe there's more dynamic equivalence right, than right, NIV. Right. He says, when a translator tries to take the Greek thought and translate it into a similar... Uh, oh, oh he, 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 he's agreeing. He says it is, it's not word-for-word. Word, it's thought-for-thought, thought, right. dynamic equivalence. When a translator tries to take the Greek thought and translate it into a similar English thought... It allows the translator to become an interpreter. Right. Since most of the NIV translators originally had Baptist roots, it makes sense that their translation would have a Baptist bias. I believe it does, as it often speaks of sinful flesh and a sinful nature, which is consistent with Calvinistic doctrines. There's more, of course, but in my opinion, this is one of the most dangerous problems with the NIV. It is the most popular translation and widely used in the denominational world. I've had conversations with several people who say things like, well, we just can't help sinning. It's in our nature. I'll ask them, what translation do you use? And nine out of ten times it's the NIV. People reason if it's in the, uh, it must be so it's in the Bible. Unfortunately, it's hard to make others understand their translation of the Bible is tainted with bias. They should consider a new translation. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, the, the NIV does have a Calvinistic bias. Um, I had a note here, for instance, uh, about... Let's see, where did I put that? I thought I had a trans- I thought I had a note about the uh, New International Version, but if, well, it, well, you know, in, um, in, in Psalm 51, yeah, yeah. it talks about David being sinful from his birth. It's not right. an accurate translation. Right. No, it's not. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to mention, you know, um, there's a. I don't know if it's okay to mention this, but there's a nice chart put up by these Rose Publishing people. And uh, they just compare different Bible translations, purposes behind uh, the translation being printed, etc. And one of the things mentioned about the New International Version is that it was purposefully provided as a translation believed to be acceptable for many denominations. So, you know, the purpose then is to kind of, uh, in, in some respects, make it palatable for everybody. Well, in order to do that, you're going to have to kind of move some things around, so to speak. And so that's why not only it is a, it's a lower grade reading level, but recognizing that there are differences in what one group believes versus another, you have to kind of smooth those things over so that, you know, this group will buy it as well as that. In other words, what they've tried to do is make a version that's not offensive. That's not offensive to anybody. Well, yeah. then you have to change things. To do that, you yeah. have to change things. Exactly right. Uh, Don in Antioch says, I use the King James Version so I can use the strong concordance to look up the original Hebrew and Greek words. 
Don, you ought to get some Bible software. You wouldn't have to stick to the King James. You could use some Bible software and do that. But he, he goes on and says, I especially love reading my copy of the 1611 edition. Wow. Wow. <laughs> he says it has words spelled as they did back then and includes the, the foreword of the, which is the translators to the reader. Uh, he says also an interlinear Bible is a must for those who want to study the original words. Uh, Let me make a comment on that. Okay. When when Bible software first came out back in the early 90s, I did the same thing that everybody else did. You know, I, I use a Young's Concordance and I have a I have a, a Greek a New Testament dictionary, etc. So I got the Bible software. But you know, I found that it was much more interesting to literally pick up the book and read through it because I was looking at different words and it always keep my mind onto something else. And eventually, I just put the software away and I still use the books today. I've got software like everybody else does, but I find it. You still like using hardback I still like books. a hardback book because I not only find the word I was looking for, but oftentimes I might find a variant of that word that if you're you're looking on the software, it's going to give you the word you're looking for and not a variant on that word. Okay. All right. Good point. Good point. Um, an email from uh, Garland says, I believe we should use the version that most faithfully translates the original Hebrew and Greek into the modern English, incorporating the latest in archaeolo- archaeological and linguistic scholarship. It's my opinion that the English Standard Version is the clear front-runner by those standards. Until the English Standard Version came around, I held to the New American Standard Version to, to best fit this criteria. That said, much can be gained from consulting several versions which approach the art of translating from different perspectives. I keep BibleGateway.com uh, on my computer to show passages in five translations side-by-side. Side. English Standard, New American Standard, well, uh, HCSB, I don't know what that stands for. That must be some kind of Hebrew Bible, maybe? I don't know. Uh, New King James Version and New International Version. Each offer something unique in terms of translating word for word, thought for thought, or somewhere in between. I don't know what, do you know what HCSB stands for? I'm not familiar with that. I'm not familiar no, with that. No, Carly, uh, you're going to have to help me help me out with that one. Holman, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's, it's referencing okay. this. Okay, Holman Christian Standard. Okay. Thing. Um, got an email from Nellie who says, years ago, I, we need to comment about this, we're almost out of time, but she says, years ago I bought a King James Version Schofield Study Bible. She says, uh, my problem is in the comments at the bottom that clearly suggest a return of Jesus Christ on earth to reign for a thousand years. I need a Bible that has comments in teaching the true word of God. I'd really like to have a study Bible that I could trust the comments to be the gospel. That's, That's the problem you're going to have with one of those study with Bibles. every study Bible. Yeah, because it's put out by an individual who then applies their own view of Scripture as a commentary that you're supposed to understand. Exactly right. So you get, you get study Bibles can be helpful, but you've got to realize that those study notes are not inspired. inspired. Right. They're man-written, and everyone is going to have some flaw somewhere in it That's because right. it's not inspired. Real quickly, Jim, we didn't get to spend much time on versions we should avoid. We talked some about the New International Version. Yeah, New International Version, I guess. Uh, And I I was just thinking of maybe paraphrase. Any Bible that's paraphrase, any Bible that's a study Bible. That's right. Uh, And several of of our emailers said to avoid the paraphrases. Uh, Jack says any version which is paraphrased. What what are some of the paraphrased Bibles? The Living living Bible. The Living Bible. And there's one out now that I think is kind of popular called The Message. That I believe also is a paraphrase. Yeah, it's by Navigator Press. It's sixth grade reading level. It's a paraphrase. Okay. So uh, if you can get me, by the way, tell tell that chart again, Jim, because I think that's very helpful. Okay. If I can mention this, it's Rose Publishing. It's called Bible Translation Comparisons. They also put out a nice uh, PowerPoint disc that you can buy. It's got about 200 uh, slides on it, how we got the Bible. Um, both their How We Got the Bible uh, and the, the um, Bible Translation Comparison chart 
you can you can buy them at Bible bookstores. That's Rose Publishing. Okay, and I think it's real helpful. Because, I mean, I I never knew that they these versions were rated for grade level. Right. And and I think that's real helpful. I mean, if if you find one that's written at a third or fourth or fifth grade level, you've got to know that 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 the text has been dumbed down basically right, right. in order to make it at that level. And so you you got to think that can't be as reliable as one that is at a twelfth grade reading level. You you want to challenge in reading. You know yeah. you don't want to. You know if you want to go home and read a good book, you don't want to go home and read something that's written for a third grader. Exactly right. You wouldn't want to read a, uh, uh, as you said, if you went to the library to pay out a book, you uh, and here are the books written for third graders. You say, I don't want that. You know, you, I want something more challenging. Well, we should also approach our Bible study that same way. That's right. All right, great. Jim, thanks for joining us on the Virtual Bible Study. Thank you. Appreciate I it. think it's an important topic. I appreciate your expertise in it. Uh, we do need to, to uh, understand something about the English translations that we're depending upon. We're depending on. Most all of us are depending upon someone to translate it into our language. There's a lot of English translations out there. Out there. Several are good. I'm going to repeat the top five that Jim mentioned King James, New King James, American Standard, New American Standard, Revised Standard as being re- uh, good, reliable uh, versions. Um, the English Standard is getting a lot of play, a lot of play yeah. and and uh, the reviews on it are reasonably good. I was looking uh, at an article written by Wayne Jackson, who does a lot of work in apologetics, and he seems to think it's a pretty good translation. So yeah. uh, maybe a little more investigation on the English standard would be helpful. Uh, but it, it seems to be getting pretty good press initially, at least. It's a fairly new one. Been out there less than 10 years. Right, 2005, I think. Okay. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks again, Jim. Uh, remember to make this a regular appointment on Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. Uh, and we'll look forward to you joining us next week. Until that time, read your Bible. You've got it in English. Read it. Study it. Live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.